Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're doing De Regno by Thomas Aquinas. De Regno is not very long. You really can read it in quite a short period of time. It's very it's a pretty easy text to read as political theory texts go. So we're going to be pretty thorough here because we can. It's it's not that long. So Alex, what moved you to pick De Regno this week? Uh he seems to praise monarchy a lot, but He's also quite ambiguous about it and quite appealing to a modern audience, I think. Um, but I'm a bit confused. He says that tyrants are not so bad because they don't degenerate or corrupt as much as oligarchies. But at the same time, they're way worse than oligarchies because if they are attacking the common good, they're much more unified in that attack. So, Yeah, there's some interesting moves he makes. Uh, so, of course, Aquinas following Aristotle does the same division. You have the three bad regimes and the three good regimes. So, for Aquinas, the tyrant is the bad one. Oligarchs are the bad few. Democracy is the bad many. Polity is the good many. Aristocracy is the good few. Monarchy is the good one, right? And the difference between good and bad here is that with the good regimes, the rulers rule for the common good. In the bad regimes, the rulers rule for private interest, right? Now, the reason that the monarch is considered best for Aquinas is that the monarch is the most unified. And the peace, which is very important for Aquinas, is one of the most important things the king does, secures and protects the peace. The peace is a kind of unity. So it's not just uh, peace in terms of the prevention of war. It's also a kind of unity within the state, you know, associating this concept of peace with, to some degree, other, other kinds of uh, forms of accord. Right? If you think about Roman ideas of consensus at Concordia, Pax is not just peace with respect to enemies. It's also a kind of internal unity, internal accord. Right? So, because monarchy is one person, it's the most unified. It's hard for a monarch to be divided, whereas with an aristocracy or a polity, because you have multiple people, you can have divisions. If some of the people who make up the aristocracy or the polity become bad, become oligarchs, then uh, that is already a, a point of contestation, which can potentially destroy the state. Whereas with the monarch, as long as the monarch is virtuous, you can't have that. Now, the tyrant however, is, is considered the worst possible form of government, even though the monarch is considered the best. Because the tyrant, if the tyrant is bad, the tyrant is bad absolutely. There is no other part of the state which can contest the badness of the tyrant. And also, because in the bad regimes, the government is ruling for private interest, the tyrant is just one person. So when you have a tyrant, the tyrant rules just for that one person. In an oligarchy, the oligarchs rule for a small number of people. In a democracy, the, the, the demos rules for the majority of the people, but in a private way, in a selfish way. Right? So the tyrant rules for the smallest part of the city. And the tyrant rules in a completely unified way. So the tyrant rules in a completely unified way for just one person. And that's what makes the tyrant the worst, right? And yet, as you point out, there, there's still going to be some arguments here that confuse the situation a little bit. Sometimes aristocracy and polity, he admits, are better than monarchy because subjects often confuse monarchs with tyrants. So they don't always work hard for their kings. But if they are participating in an aristocracy or a polity, they're often more intrinsically motivated to work hard for the common good. And he argues that in the Roman Republic, this is what happened. The replacement of Tarquin, of the, uh, of the kings, resulted in a surge in energy on the part of the Romans as they you know, worked very hard, the Roman aristocrats and the Roman people, to 
make the republic a success. But of course, because aristocrats and uh, aristocracies and polities are more divided, because they're more divided, inevitably this produces class conflict. And that leads to the collapse of that form of rule. And you get the Roman emperors. And Aquinas says that while some Roman emperors ruled like monarchs, the bulk of them ruled as tyrants. So the argument here is that while aristocracy or polity might be better than monarchy for a time, because people will be excited to be part of an aristocracy or a polity, the divisions that are inherent in aristocracy or polity will gradually ruin it and lead uh, more totally to tyranny. So aristocracy and polity are more likely to, to lead to tyranny than monarchy. Uh, it's interesting because he, he gets to the idea that aristocracy and polity might be better, in part by saying that monarchs and tyrants often look similar to one another and are hard to tell apart. Mm. And yet, then the argument is you shouldn't embrace aristocracy or polity because that's even more likely to produce tyranny than a monarch. Yeah. And when a tyrant neglects the common good, they're less likely to actually go on and abuse it by attacking the peace. They might hurt an individual here or there, but they won't, for example, build the whole government on dissension, which is what a bad democracy is. So I guess in a democracy, you might have the benefit of devoting maybe yourself to the state and not to another person, another ruler. So you might see it as a common interest, but you also identify with the split or the, among the rulers because it's built on ambition checking ambition which we think yes. is the best thing ever and yes, I, in I, an aristocracy or in a polity the constant structural division is a greater problem in the long term uh, than the tyrant even if the tyrant is in absolute terms worse in the moment the long-term structural issues of an aristocracy or a polity uh, as it decays into an oligarchy or a democracy are for aquinas harder to resolve than the issues that you get with a tyrant. Even though the tyrant is worse in the moment, the aristocracy and polity has a, a worse outlook long-term. There is some discussion of what you do about a tyrant. Uh, if you commit tyrannicide, if you murder a tyrant, odds are you'll get another and the next one will be worse. And because tyrants and monarchs are easily conflated, and, and one of the things tyrants do is they destroy the virtue of the people. It's unlikely that the people who kill a tyrant will be virtuous or will have done it for a virtuous reason or will be able to replace the tyrant with some virtuous form of government. So most of the time, if private citizens commit tyrannicide, it won't accomplish anything. And if anything, it will make the situation worse. However, he does suggest that if a public authority removes a tyrant, that that could be all right. But then he gives a very weird example he gives the example of Domitian, the, Rome, the Roman emperor Domitian, who, of course, uh, comes during the first century. Nero, of course, is deposed. You have the year of the four emperors. Then you get Vespasian, the house of the, of the Flavians. Uh, you get Vespasian, and then you get Titus, and then you get Domitian, the last of the Flavians. Now, Domitian was very popular with the soldiers, but the senators despised him. Uh, and he was removed through an extrajudicial assassination. There was no legal or constitutional mechanism by which Domitian was removed. There was a conspiracy, uh, or at least it's widely believed that there was a conspiracy. Some accounts suggest that this murder just kind of happened in a totally unplanned way. But I, I think Aquinas interprets this as a senatorial com conspiracy to kill Domitian. Certainly the Senate rejoiced at the death of Domitian and uh, took the opportunity to proclaim Nerva emperor. It was a kind of high point of the Senate's influence during the Principate. It was able to pick the next emperor, which usually it was not able to do. So as Aquinas reads this situation, it seems that Aquinas reads it as if the Senate killed Domitian. And because the Senate is a public institution, this makes it different. But the Senate did not exercise any constitutional or formal legal powers to kill Domitian. It did not have any legal right to kill Demission, and the killing itself was not framed as a killing by the Senate at the time. It was, uh, if anything, a kind of conspiracy, maybe a conspiracy, maybe just a few people uh, acting on their own uh, volition. So, uh, and as it happens, after after uh, Demission is killed and Nerva is proclaimed emperor, the army laid siege to the palace and took Nerva hostage 
and demanded that Nerva hand over those responsible for killing Domitian. And Nerva was forced to do this, and he was also forced to give a speech thanking the soldiers for kidnapping him and and making him do this. And of course, after he gave a speech thanking the soldiers for kidnapping him, his charisma was completely destroyed, and he was forced to pick a, a, a adopt a replacement emperor and all but abdicate after that. He was completely embarrassed by that. And of course, the person he adopts is the Emperor Trajan, who is famous for being considered the very best emperor, Optimus Princeps, and all of that. But I think what's interesting about Aquinas' use of this example is that when he says a public authority can potentially remove a tyrant, he cites an instance in which a tyrant, uh, Domitian, insofar as Domitian was a tyrant, he was killed in a totally extrajudicial way by the Senate uh, with no kind of public authority, I mean, not even by the Senate, in a conspiracy that may or may not have involved the support of members of the Senate, which the senators were glad happened after the fact. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I found that a very weird example for Aquinas to use and an extremely suspect part of the argument. You- after that, he moves to this idea that the cooperation of God is usually required to remove tyrants. And if you want God to help you to invite divine aid, overcome sin because God punishes sin with tyrants. So uh, overcome sin to get rid of tyranny. And that, I think, is his principal argument. But this weird bit about Domitian, it's so weird. Do you think it fits well with the other example of deposition, which is the Old Testament I think it was Aoth who slayed the king of Moab. And yeah, it seems like the Old Testament permits people, because once he slayed Moab, he became a judge, which I think is like a military dictator in the Old Testament language. And it's in the book of Judges, I think. So that would seem to be okay to depose. But then Aquinas says that's not in accordance with apostolic opinion because Christ obviously made kings subject to him by, yeah, by submitting to kings. That's what's so special. Um, yeah, that seems also extrajudicial, but it, it would also seem like uh, a public institution because it said it's regarded as the people slaying a foe. Or no, it's regarded as the people deposing a king when actually it should be regarded as someone slaying a foe. Yeah, Aquinas says if a public institution does it, it can be okay, but he doesn't really say that the... The cases that in the cases that he gives, the public institution doesn't speak as a public institution, use the law, make a, a kind of legal decision. It's people who are prominent within the state deciding on their own in the name of the state to kill the tyrant. So I think what's interesting here is that these people are are suggesting that they're killing the tyrant for public reasons rather than for private reasons. But of course, since it's not a a constitutional system that is removing the tyrant, there's still a sense in which it's private individuals killing the tyrant, but their reasons are are public. And they're valid too, because as he said, it's not legitimate for a king to even deliberate on the question of whether he should establish peace. So if he, yeah, that's like a right to revolt in a way. But then he says, if you're just a private citizen, then you shouldn't be killing tyrants. No, you should endure it. You have to be, right, you have to endure it. So you have to be in some way able to plausibly represent or personate the state to lawfully kill a tyrant for Aquinas. But there is an immense vagueness about what it would mean in a monarchy in particular, in a tyranny, for someone to be able to claim the right to represent the common good in such a way that the public authority is able well, to go after the tyrant. There's no system of constitution laid out here. We don't get a, a kind of complicated account of a mixed regime. There's no, we don't have that in De Regno. So we're left with the kind of vague notion that there may be some other part of the state which can kill a tyrant for public reasons, but we don't get a whole lot more than that. No, you don't get a complicated account of mixed constitution, but you do get some. Are you saying mm-hmm. that's not enough? I'm saying it's it's pretty general here. There's a you know, notion, yeah. of course, that the Senate is part of the Roman Principate uh, and in, has some kind of claim to be representing the common wealth or to be uh, embodying in some way uh, the common good. But because the Senate doesn't have to use any kind of fixed legal constitutional procedure to do this, 
this introduces an enormous amount of vagueness in who can claim to be rightfully killing a tyrant. Mm. So it's a gaping uh, issue in this argument that I think invites a lot of the future speculation about rights of resistance. Whenever you're doing Thomas Aquinas, you got to think, okay, this is the mainstream medieval view. This is about as mainstream a medieval view as you're going to find. So any issues in the view, any gaps or, or issues of vagueness, that opens up areas of contestation later on as Aquinas becomes more dominant and more significant in medieval theory. Any area of his argument that is a little bit unclear becomes an opportunity for everybody to fight over exactly what's okay to do. Mm. And this is, I think, a great example of that. It, yeah, it, it leans mainstream, you could say conservative. I don't know if that's... Because, say, if someone criticized the church or had a bad experience with a priest in the church today, they might find another denomination. I think maybe in Aquinas time, you would have maybe shut up and put up with it in that specific denomination. But it seems similar, right? It's like, you, even in the most apologist Catholic circles, it's not tolerable for a pope to be a manifest heretic, obviously. But you might still, say, if you're more favorable to the pope, you might uh, only say that heresy is the only reason to depose him as opposed to, you know, other other crimes. So a bit like with Catholics in the faith today, you might find, I don't know, more reasons to, to switch denomination than you did back then, but there's always going to be some reason. Now, this is pre-Protestantism. So uh, pre-Protestantism, you're not really getting out of Catholicism for other denominations. Uh, oh, okay. Short Sorry, of churches. going to... Yeah, yeah. short of going to the Byzantine Empire, you're not getting out of the denomination. Of course, because that means different uh, faith, right? Or different, I don't know. It would be schismatic behavior at this time. You couldn't just switch denominations. Uh, Short of of going to the East or or going to places where Eastern versions of Christianity, Coptic and so on, continued to thrive. Uh, You're kind of stuck in in this period. So Aquinas ends up giving a version of political theory that the church finds very amenable to its usual overall position. And of course, when we talked in the Marsilius of Padua episode about the further disputes, uh, these disputes came in part because Pope John overreaches what Aquinas says here. He kind of overinterprets it. So we're going to get on to the relationship between the king and the pope in a moment. But part of what happens here is that while Aquinas's view situates kings in relationships to popes. Uh, It doesn't do it in such an overridingly clear way that you can't possibly dispute the relationship. Right? Because divine government and earthly government are not so distinctly defined. Right. So let's talk about insofar as they are defined, uh, how are they defined? So, A good king, Aquinas says, performs the role of God in the world. God creates and governs, right? So kings found states and they rule them. Not every king does both, but those are things kings do. God provides for his creation by ensuring it has what it needs. And and kings do the same. They ensure that a people have what they need to achieve their final end. Now, The final end of man for Aquinas is, of course, he says, not wealth. If that were the case, economic knowledge would be most important. It's not health or medical knowledge would be uh, most important. And it's not even knowledge of the truth. If that were the case, the king would need to be a pedagogue or a teacher. The final end is virtuous living, not knowledge as such. And so uh, he says... Uh, there's an interesting line here, and I like it because it's in some ways it gives you, I think, what Aquinas would have to say about more contemporary societies. He says, only those who render mutual assistance to one another in living well form a genuine part of an assembled multitude. If men assembled merely to live, then animals and slaves would form a part of the civil community. Or if men assembled only to accrue wealth, then all those who traded together would belong to one city. Yeah, as we kind of globalize the world economy in service of maximizing economic growth, you, know, you can see that there is an element of truth to what is being said there. If we think that our goal is principally to grow the size of the economy, then uh, that does tend to produce cosmopolitan attitudes. 
Uh, and of course, the the idea that we are not trying to pursue some kind of very difficult form of virtuous living or esoteric notion of truth, but we are just trying to uh, have pleasurable lives or, or exercise our autonomy, uh, pursue the German ideal of freedom, what have you. Uh, a lot of the modern ideas are more accessible to people at lower rungs on the socioeconomic ladder. So slaves for Aquinas are kicked out of the polity because slaves are, uh, in his view, only trying to live. They are not trying to live virtuously. So insofar as we've dropped the, the idea of virtue from political theory in modernity, we are able to include people who previously were excluded on the assumption that they were not able to develop the virtues because they did not have access to the things necessary for that. Uh, so I think that's an interesting bit. Now, virtuous living for Aquinas cannot be achieved through human power alone. It can only be achieved through God. And for that reason, the king must submit to God's priests, chief of which, of course, is the Pope. Now, if, if you think back to the Iamblichus episode that we just did, right? This idea that you, it's not enough to just do philosophy. You also need to have rituals. You also need to invite the divine to help you to get at access to the truth. And without divine help, you can't get all the way there. Philosophy alone is not enough. That kind of thought in Aquinas turns into human power alone is not enough to get virtue. And therefore, the king has to be subordinated to the pope. Well, it seems like the human power to be virtuous is entirely supernatural in origin. It comes from that. Like your capacity for reason, intellect, will... All the things that make you in a properly human act are the same things that make it a spiritual act, I think. Is that fair to say? I wouldn't say entirely supernatural because there's a role for the church community in this and for the church as an institution and structure on earth. Okay, so when right. I say that, am I implying that all the divine is just some kind of, yeah, an order that works through principles? Is that what I'm implying or what? Because I'm not sure. But I, I would say that the Catholic Church certainly has an element of ritual in what it does. And so I don't think it's entirely divorced from, say, what Iamblichus was talking about in terms of theurgic ritual. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, the bread and the wine and so on. There is an element of that still in the Catholic Church. The necessity of a, a church community, that is in Iamblichus. So I don't think it's entirely divorced from that. It's more of a mess. Of course. Yeah. Now, of course, there are some differences between Aquinas and Iamblichus or between medieval thought and, and that kind of thought. But I, I want to point out this similarity, which is that once you say that you need divine aid to access truth, then it's not enough to just set up a city which enables philosophy to take place. Now you also need some kind of divine help or assistance. And so that requires some sort of religious institution. Right. So in Iamblichus, it's you need this set of high priests who are uh, very well versed in theurgy and they determine what kinds of rites ought to be performed. Here, you have to submit ultimately to the Pope because the Pope is the one who is going to be most able to figure out how to get God's help in enabling people to live virtuous lives. Right. But the king still has an important role to play in providing for virtue. Aristotle hasn't been totally left behind here. So the things the king needs to do provide for the unity of the multitude, which Aquinas associates with the concept of peace. Direct the multitude to live well via the law and provide for the bodily goods which are necessary for a virtuous life. So Aquinas says that virtuous living is threatened by the changeability of men, the fact that people at different points in their lives uh, are more or less able to live virtuously, their level of energy or effort waxes and wanes, uh, by the perversity of their will, because a lot of people are lazy or aggressive or slothful or they have various kinds of vices, uh, wrath, etc., and attacks, of course, from external enemies, from other peoples, right? 
So to deal with changeability, the king must replace ministers who become old or die or they become decadent and useless as the particular people who are appointed to their jobs will not always be able to perform those jobs. So kings have to pay a lot of attention to their ministers and whether they have the right people in those roles. Next, to deal with perversity, the king must use the law to stop people from being lazy and aggressive uh, and use a system of rewards and punishments to get them to behave. And then, of course, obviously, the king has to fight the foes abroad that potentially threaten to swallow up the realm. Uh, He says kings should always be zealous for the better gifts. They should always try to improve the situation, no matter how good it could be. Uh, it, It might be. It could always be better. Uh, And that's how he closes part one of this text, which is the bulk of it. So before proceeding to part two, do you have any any comments on any of that or any thoughts, Alex? Yeah, the king is ideally a philosopher king, but also a timocrat. Um, Not in that section, but before when we're talking about ruling justly, he says that the justice, it really means the king prefers to rule his own passions and not the whole country, the nation. Um, And all actions he does are for God, for God's sake. So, yeah, there's a discussion of why kings rule. And so, of course, many kings receive glory as a reward for their rule. Aquinas argues that kings should not rule principally for glory because this makes them subject to the opinions of others and it tends to diminish their own virtue. But it's better for them to rule for glory than for riches, because if they're ruling for glory, then at least they care about the opinions of people who may seem virtuous. Whereas if they rule for riches, they just become abusive plunderers of the kingdoms that they rule. Uh, But the the argument is that kings should principally look to God for their reward. The king is God's minister. God promises good kings everlasting rewards. And then, of course, the old philosophical argument is trotted out. The the reward of virtue is happiness and tyrants are miserable, just like in Plato. Mm. Right. Also, incidentally, tyrants are punished. They go straight to hell. Yeah. But they have no freedom of will. It's not just about their God's servant in some meaningless sense. Like, it's, it's advantageous to them as well. And if that if they, they, it doesn't appeal to them, then obviously they ought to receive more glory than private citizens. And Aquinas says that kings ought to be, yeah, rewarded for their service. Yes, if you can't get good behavior out of a genuine commitment to virtue, you settle for uh, glory pursuit. Just like in Plato, where if you can't be a gold soul who prioritizes the good, you settle for being silver and prioritizing honor. The Timocrat is the next best thing if you can't have someone who is just purely interested in virtue or in God, uh, then you settle for the Timocrat who wants to be well thought of. And at least because he wants to be well thought of, he won't do anything too awful. Mm. It seems like he also wants to make all the people himself. He has a lot of responsibility for virtue yeah, within himself and others, but that means making people like a tool for God, maybe like an instrument for God in the sense that an instrument from a, for Aquinas can be, it could be a dead one. It could be a living one like an ox, or it could be a rational one like a slave or even more higher than that. It could be your own soul within your own soul. And then it could be a separate or it could be a joined instrument. So the highest form, which would be joined and rational is your human character. And that when it imitates the mysteries of Christ and yeah, follows the gospel, becomes, it participates in the divine nature, becomes similar to Christ, and you become a tool of God. So that's how... Yes. Yeah. There is a discussion specifically of nature very briefly in this. Very briefly, he talks about nature. He doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but you can see how this uh, emphasis on on the natural uh, is going to stay with everybody. Monarchy is also natural. It's more natural than the other systems of government. And Aquinas says what is natural is best. And of course, that links into the notion that natural law is in some way reflective, in some way connected to uh, further kinds of theological law. And that idea that what is natural is important is going to be huge. Uh, Once the consensus breaks down on what is natural, as we've talked about before, that produces a huge amount of conflict. So when... We're operating here from the idea that what is natural is straightforwardly observable and we can figure it out and that we can have a consensus about what's natural. As that breaks down in future centuries, that 
produces a lot of problems in political theory. Mm. What were the breaks down within the consensus of this being natural? Is it just all the debates? Well, all those later debates about what human nature is. If you think about, say, Hobbes and Hume, right? You remember Hobbes making the argument that uh, it's in our nature to uh, fight with each other over scarce goods because we don't know what is in other people's minds. We live in separate bodies. We can't enjoy the same goods together because our bodies are separated. Uh, We can't trust other people because we don't know what's in their minds and they can deceive us with language. And oftentimes to prevent other people from attacking us, it may be useful to attack them first or to to be preemptive, to seek a glorious reputation. And then say Hume, for instance, argues that people are, are nice enough to their family and friends, but they're willing to steal from strangers to give to their family and friends. They're a bit nepotistic and a bit uh, focused on the people they can see, right? You have all of these different accounts of human nature that kind of spill out. You have Jeremy Bentham arguing that people move toward pleasure and away from pain, and that's more or less the way everything ought to be understood. So as uh, ideas about the natural break down due to Protestantism and humanism and so on, uh, then you get a lot more conflict about what it is that we should be trying to do politically, what it is that the state is for. If the goal of the state is to advance people toward their final end, and the final end is the fulfillment of their nature, then once there is disagreement about what human nature is, then there will also be disagreement about how to fulfill the final human end. Mm. So the, the point I'm trying to make here is that you can see in Aquinas, there's kind of a blueprint in Aquinas that, A, it's got some vague areas. So there are going to be people who broadly agree with Aquinas, but have different interpretations or different emphases Uh, in these vague spots where Aquinas' text gives room for multiple different interpretations or spinoff theories. Then you've also got people who will reject more totally Aquinas' view of human nature and and reject more totally the idea that pursuing the virtuous life is what is natural for people in general to do. Uh, Why? But a lot of those people who reject that view are still going to be thinking in terms of the state has to advance or in some way respond to human nature. So if they change the view of what's natural, then they still, that, that because they still have this legacy from Aquinas, this Thomistic legacy, they, it still causes them to rethink politics because the natural is dictating the political. And the natural is you know, for Aquinas, it's got this theological component that comes from Christianity. Once you break the natural off from Christianity, a lot of the later Western theorists are still going to have their notion of natural dictating the political. And so they've still got the natural ahead of the political. It's just that they have taken out some of the theological content or changed some of the theological content. So they're not able to get out of that particular order of operations. And we see this in the utilitarians who, once they decide that it's our nature to just say pursue pleasure or avoid pain, have a a totally uh, kind of, from the point of view of ancient theory, vulgarized political theory. We talked about that way back when Edmund and I did the utilitarianism episode. Um, But you can see in this how there's a blueprint here that some people are going to interpret in different ways and some people are going to modify, but the blueprint still has an enormous influence on everything that comes later, including the stuff which tries to explicitly reject the blueprint. So in part two, what do you think about something that could be taken in quite a modern direction? It was about, let me just find the capacities of individuals, I think. Um, Oh yeah, yeah, go for it. I think he's talking about division of labor talking about employing people as suitable for their particular condition and state in life. You could read that in quite a modern way, maybe, because in a way it's like the promise of job life, retirement. Back then, laborers could own property as well. So how is it different from like a private expression you'd find nowadays in, yeah, in your labor, in your free time? And how is it different yeah, from Yeah, we still have this emphasis. Yeah, well, 
I don't think that these people are being considered as individuals. It's not that they should pursue these different crafts to pursue their individual good and that their individual good is is distinctively theirs and separated from the overall fate of the city. The private good, you know, the individual good is something which causes problems in the city for Aquinas. Yeah. So they should perform the roles that they're best suited to. The roles that they're best suited to are not determined by their individual desires, but by what contributes to the overall good of the city. Right? Yeah. It does he fully define individuals in terms of contribution? Because you might take his moral philosophy as a kind of standalone look, the dignity of the person, the individual can be defined outside of political arrangements, maybe. Well, we have at the very beginning of the whole text the bit, uh, you know, man has reason, but he cannot provide for his needs alone. So man needs society. And society breaks apart unless there is someone looking out for the common good. And that someone has to be the government, whether it's one, few, many, or some mixed regime, right? So, because he agrees with Aristotle that man needs society and cannot function outside of society, to think about the private, into the private good is to misunderstand fundamentally the way that people live. People think of themselves as private because they're in one body, but because they can't actually thrive and achieve their ends as people individually, in point of fact, they've got to be part of a society. But because they live in one particular body, they're not necessarily going to think about the good of the whole society. And they'll often free ride on the society, pursuing their own individual good, taking advantage of the fact that they live in cities. And that's why government for Aquinas is necessary to reorient these people who are deviating, who have become in various ways corrupt, back toward the common good. Whereas maybe nowadays the common good is individuals pursuing private good, seemingly outside of politics, but who, who would say that? Who would actually say that it, individuals can survive nowadays outside politics? No one would, so maybe I'm strawmanning the present. Well, it's a, it's a bit of a, nowadays you have a kind of aggregative view. So, for instance, in a utilitarian account, which I think is a quintessentially modern account, you can talk about what's collectively good for society only by adding up the individual pleasures and pains, the individual well-being, right? So, utilitarians are interested in the good of the whole society or even the whole human species, but they do it in an aggregative way by adding up the private goods of particular individuals. And all the, the collective good is for utilitarians is an aggregation, a mathematical adding up of individuals. For Aquinas, the common good is a distinct and different thing from the sum of the individual goods. And indeed, because the common good is the thing which allows anybody to do well, the common good is what really matters. And what people think of as individual good is a distorted view because they can't exist outside society in any case. But what if the utilitarian isn't just yeah, adding? Well, maybe they're trying to minimize suffering and they care more about the getting rid of the displeasure than increasing the pleasure. And to a lot of schools of thought, that would be something like a capital, I don't know, you know, the good instead of just some kind of what you call an aggregation. It's quite a thick principle, right? Well, As in, so part of how utilitarians have responded to criticism is by trying to add, you know, the original Benthamite formula of pleasure and pain. It sounds very bronze to anybody who is familiar with Plato or ancient thought. Uh, it sounds very much like just pursuing, say, money. You know, when, when uh, Aquinas talks about a state that's just about trying to pursue wealth or riches or pleasure, how different kinds of knowledge would be important to that state, and there would be no use for priests or the church or religion in those places. And priests and, and would be underneath the state in such societies, he says. And it makes sense that they were historically underneath them because those societies were only interested in worldly goods. So, Part of how utilitarians respond is by trying to widen out the principle of utility so that it includes all of the things which, in the Benthamite formulation, it seems like it might not include. But there is still fundamentally an aggregative character to utilitarianism because it starts with individuals. Even if you broaden out pleasure and pain to something like utility, you're still adding up the utility of individuals, and you're starting with the individual as your first principle. For someone like Aquinas, you can't start with the individual as first principle because the individual cannot thrive without society. And so, therefore, you have to think about 
social good because individual good that contradicts social good cannot be sustained. So when people try to run a city in a way which is about private interest, this destroys the city ultimately. And so it, of course, also destroys them individually and their private interests. So if you run a city in an oligarchic or a democratic or a tyrannical way, eventually you will gut it. And so all of the things that you think you're achieving for yourself, uh, it's all illusory. And that's why the tyrant is miserable. The person who runs the city entirely for their own benefit still ends up miserable, is unable to benefit from living that way because that kind of behavior destroys the thing, which ultimately is a prerequisite for any kind of human happiness. There's similar ways to really destroy your political life in Deregno. It's not as bad as tyranny. It's commerce as well. Or, yeah, yes. Getting your food yes, from this trade. this is interesting. Yeah, so in the second section, there's first there's a, a bit where Aquinas talks about what where you should found cities, and he talks about, uh, you know, cold climates and hot climates. This is a very common thing because Aristotle makes this argument himself. And so a lot of people is that valid, have that these arguments about climate. Now, it's interesting because people think of, of this as a kind of a racial theory. But of course, it's pre the, the concept of race is not yet in the history of political thought at this time. So what is being argued here is not that there are different races, but that different kinds of climates give rise to different ways of living. So he quotes Aristotle and he says, Peoples that dwell in cold countries are full of spirit, but have little intelligence and little skill. Consequently, they maintain their liberty better, but have no political life, and, through lack of prudence, show no capacity for governing others. Those who live in hot regions are keen-witted and skillful in the things of the mind, but possess little spirit, and so are in continuous subjection and servitude. But those who live between these extremes of climate are both spirited and intelligent, hence they are continuously free, their political life is very much developed, and they are capable of ruling others. It's, in other words, an attempt to explain why the Greeks and the Romans are able to build an empire, but, say, people in uh, Northern Europe and people in the Middle East were not able to build an empire uh, similar uh, in scale to the Roman Empire. It's a climate-based theory. Uh, very common way of thinking in the Middle Ages. And notice, it's not a racial theory. If you move from a hot climate to a cold climate, your behavior will change as you acclimatize. Insofar as you can still acclimatize if you're not overly habituated to the place in which you were born. And so there's a lot of worrying in, in ancient thought that if you go and you move to a place like Egypt, you will become less virile, less physical. You uh, will The heat will prevent you from getting out and exercising. And it'll just be too hot to do very much of anything physically. And so there will be a kind of physical softening that occurs. This isn't to do with being Egyptian. It's to do with living in Egypt in a place that's very hot. That's the way that uh, Greeks and Romans would often think about differences in regions and in cultural behavior associated with regions. They think about the climate or the geography as the causal factor. And it, uh, Go ahead. Yeah, just it matters that you can fight because virtue is, is, as you said, if virus it's also being virile it's quite a, a manly you know misogynistic whatever but that's how it you, you can't just be intellectual you have to be able to fight and if you yes, in a hot you've climate, got to be able to defend the state yeah yeah exactly. that's always a factor in ancient and medieval thought always yeah and if you're a yeah. commercial person and you like yeah you like to well you have to be greedy to like commerce because oh this is where yeah so coming on to commerce Commerce is its own issue. So Aquinas does not say that there should be no merchants, but he says that uh, there should only be a, quote, moderate use. Moderate, of course, is a, a wonderful Aristotelian word that anybody who likes Aristotle loves to use the word moderate. Aquinas recommends only a moderate use of merchants. He discourages using them too much because mercantile activity itself encourages greed and selfishness turning people away from the common good. So being a merchant for Aquinas, just the fact that you are engaging in that activity tends to produce a greedy or selfish character. And right? So that's a kind of almost Marxist point. If you occupy this class position, the position of being a merchant, then you will tend to think in this particular kind of way or have these particular kind of traits. And that's been determined by the social role that you've put people into. 
So in some ways, it anticipates Marxist arguments about how, say, being in the role of the bourgeoisie gives you a bourgeois attitude. You know, that's in Thomas Aquinas there. Wow. Uh, now, also, if you... Oh, do you have something? No, not really. Well, also, if people spend too much time in the city center, they will fight more. They'll disagree more. And merchants have to gather in the city center to sell their wares in the marketplace. So, to avoid conflict, he argues that the city should be self-sufficient, relying on local farmers instead of goods from faraway places, so that most people spend most of their time in the outlying areas farming, and so they don't bother each other too much. Human beings are social, but they shouldn't be packed together for Aquinas in a place where they won't get along. They should still have their own places to go that are nonetheless part of the city. If you pack them into the walls, I guess they'll either organize enough, well enough to plot, or they'll be so disorganized they start fighting and they have quarrels. That's what he says. And they'll pester each other, yeah. Uh, so, and this also, and there's disease. a lot of emphasis on self-sufficiency in this. Uh, Aquinas often argues that the king should endeavor to make the realm self-sufficient so it is not reliant on trade to keep this mercantile activity limited. Now, of course... Aquinas is not so idealistic to think that a city never has to make any kind of trading at all. No city can be located near every resource the city needs. But these merchants have to be kept in check for Aquinas because they cause trouble. They are unable, ultimately, to prioritize the, common, uh, the commonwealth. They are unable to prioritize the common good. And you see how this is anticipating you know, the debates that we later on see about commerce and luxury, where... People like Adam Smith will argue it's possible to be engaged in commercial activity and be a good person, that those things can go together, that you can be a, a business person who is active in civil society organizations in your local area, and you can be civic-minded uh, if you are living in a kind of state which permits that. But for Aquinas, uh, mercantile activity inherently poses a, a class-based threat. The, the, the class of merchants inherently threatens the kind of state which Aquinas is describing. There's also a fun point about beauty. The city should not be too beautiful for Aquinas. If it's too beautiful, uh, that will just cause people to become hedonistic. They'll just want to have fun in it because it looks so nice. It, it will just entice them to want to have fun, and they... If they love life too much, if they have too good a time in the city, they won't want to risk their lives in war. So instead, instead he says, quote, It is best to have a moderate share of pleasure as a spice of life, so to speak, wherein man's mind may find some recreation. So again, moderate share of pleasure. It's not an account which negates the possibility of pleasure or advocates for any kind of totalizing austerity. And indeed, this is one of the things people notice about Catholicism in general. Catholicism makes space for people to have their fun. The monks, for instance, when they're fasting, they can drink beer. That's why they invented stout. Stout is high-calorie beer. It makes it easier to fast. Mm. And Aquinas is quite fond of quoting St. John Chrysostom in the Eastern Church. And, yeah, when you read what he has to say about marriage, for example, yeah, the church makes room for celibacy and marriage. For, and Aquinas says that the, the city needs to be in a pleasant place that people can't enjoy they can't, the city can't endure if they don't enjoy things. They don't have enjoyment. So, But yeah, it's that Aristotelian mean, right? Um, yeah, it's the Aristotelian mean. But we also see, you know, even in Plato, who people often think of as, you know, firmly anti-sex, we see this emphasis in the Republic on uh, necessary, necessary uh, desires, the desires that most people cannot get rid of, that in a city you have to make some space for, because if you try to get rid of them, You'll just end up causing problems. There will be revolts. There will be uh, non-cooperation. There's an awareness in Aquinas and in a lot of classical thought of those of those limitations. Now, in in looking at this, we've talked about a couple of the areas where things open up trouble, right? Where you've got a little bit of of, of a trouble spot or a possibility of trouble. So one, of course, is that discussion of what do you do with tyrants and the discussion of Domitian, which is very vague and easy to exploit in all sorts of ways. Uh, then you've also got this discussion of why the king has got to be underneath God. 
And that depends very much on a particular notion of how people fulfill their final end, what their final end is, what their nature is. So once you change or revise the view of what is natural or of what human nature is, then this idea that kings need to look to God uh, and that kings need uh, God's help potentially goes. And once that happens, then of course your church-state relations are going to be a, a right mess, a right mess. Mm. And that is, of course, what happens in some of the other, you know, Dante and Marsilius and Pope John. We get these very different arguments about exactly how far this goes. If the king does answer ultimately to the pope, how far can the pope push that? How far can the pope intervene? There isn't any obvious check on the pope trying to go very far in intervening in this text. And that's part of why popes like it. It emphasizes a role for kings. It doesn't say that kings... uh, don't do anything or are completely subordinate to the Pope, but it also doesn't give any explicit check on what Popes can do. And so this means that Popes who want to exercise a more aggressive, uh, more uh, intensive kind of relationship with their kings are not straightforwardly prohibited from doing that by Aquinas's work. I mean, the form of the work, though, is that all jurisdiction is natural. So any kind of claim that yeah, my papal power comes from Christ and therefore overrides all kings. You don't find that in the text, so maybe, well, I'm sure successors did kind of push that distinction between what you can do naturally and what you, how much the spiritual is needed for that. They, they would push that a lot further, such that the natural is independent. Yeah, one of the characteristic things with Aquinas is that he writes about things in a kind of compromising way. and. That's part of how he becomes so influential. He writes about things in such a way that kings feel very well respected by this work, but popes feel that their authority is secure in it. And so kings and popes who aren't trying to be very revisionist about the status quo can both read De Regno and feel okay about it. And because of that, it can become a very influential text. Now, the cost of that is that the only way that it can avoid that controversy is to fudge it in certain areas, to really fudge certain issues. And so that means if people do come along later who want to revise the status quo, this text won't necessarily prevent them from doing that. It leaves open the door to revision. Uh, And then, of course, there's also this question of the role of religion. And I I do want to emphasize, if you follow Iamblichus, in saying that there have to be rights, right? Once you introduce this idea that philosophy is not enough, there have to be rights and that rights are necessary. So it's not that they're an alternative path, but a necessary path. Once you do that, then the possibility of putting the church ahead of the state becomes a live possibility. If you don't do that, if you have a a more old school Plato, Plotinus view that you can get to truth through philosophy, then you just have to create the kind of state in which philosophy is possible. And that's a set of, of temporal factors. There is no obvious religious element to creating a situation in which philosophy can occur. It's only once you say that's not enough, you need something else, that this possibility of subordinating the secular to the religious authority comes in. That's you can only do that once you claim that religion involves uh, yeah, the masses, all people, and it has to be yeah, a, li- a whole life. So including sinful aspects as well, not kind of cloistering yourself off. And, yeah, and following the example of Christ in practical reason, yeah. not contemplation. So more of an active life than a contemplative, but I don't know. Yeah, and you really get that in Iamblichus. And that's why I think Iamblichus has a lot of influence on what comes next. The version of Platonism that comes out of Iamblichus is much more uh, potentially compatible with more religious and more spiritual orientations. Do you, do you think we disrespect one over the other or prefer active to contemplative life or not? Well, I think right now, a lot of the time it's hard to even get into that discussion because a lot of people in their everyday lives now are not focused on any of this stuff. Most people are focused on getting by because they're in a difficult difficult economic situations. And if they're not in difficult situations, they tend to be focused on competing to to get more money 
or they tend to be focused on trying to have a house that impresses people. They compare what they've done with their house to what other people are doing with their house. And they watch, you know, the television shows about renovating houses and they go, oh, do I have a better kitchen than that house? And there's a lot of that that goes on in, in capitalist society. There isn't a whole lot of discussion of what's virtuous behavior and whether that resides in contemplation or in action or in some combination thereof. So I think once we even get into a, a conversation in which living virtuously is important, now you're in a whole different debate about how to live virtuously from the one which usually occurs in modern politics. The usual debate in modern politics is how do we make sure the economy continues to grow? How do we make sure that people don't die or don't suffer physically? Yeah. Uh, when you, Those are the things, you know, bio-concerns, biopolitical concerns dominate in the contemporary period. So, but you'd always, I think hmm. some modern scholars have been interested in the possibility of creating space for people to live virtuously. I think Marx, for instance, in his you know, discussion of, of what people would do if they are liberated from uh, yeah, exploitation, uh, expresses an interest in people participating in different crafts for their own sake rather than to satisfy the market. And that in many ways rings uh, old school. But, uh, but for the most part, we just don't talk about this stuff anymore. But maybe I bring up an example of bad behavior and I, then you tell me if their needs were better cared for, they wouldn't engage in this kind of thing. It seems like if you cater for biopolitical needs, you are kind of catering for virtue. It won't be called that. The result is something like healthcare or pleasure or yeah, the good defined in individual terms, but it is it does allow for more virtuous people and so well ah uh, a big debate. It creates an output amount that might eventually allow for more virtuous people. The problem with ancient and medieval societies is that the output, you know, because one of the things that Aquinas says is that you have to ensure that everybody has what they need to achieve their their nature, right? So to make sure everybody can become virtuous, uh, you need all of the resources that are necessary for that, that Aristotle talks about, you know, to provide for leisure time. And that's why slaves feature in Aristotle's work. And slaves also feature here in Aquinas's work, because somebody has to make all of this free time. Capitalism creates a lot of free time while reducing the amount of, ac of human labor that is actually necessary to produce that free time. So capitalism has the, the future potential to create a situation in which large numbers of people can pursue virtue. But along the way, it completely distracts us from virtue because it's focused entirely on increasing the amount of stuff we have, right? So at some point, the, the amount of stuff becomes so large that you then have to go, okay, now we need to redirect our attention to using this stuff to enable people to live virtuous lives and to do philosophy and to engage in what, in, in depending on exactly what you think, some amount of, of ritual, right? But you can't even get to that point uh, until you get back out of this idea that the purpose is to just increase the output so that people can live pleasurably and live in accordance to their desire. And so it's, it's difficult because the only way you can get enough stuff to have a society where large numbers of people can pursue virtue is to go through an extended period where nobody's paying attention to virtue and everyone is just focused on increasing the amount of stuff by as much as possible. It's funny, Derek Parfit says a similar thing when he says you might actually do more good than rather than being a moral philosopher. Just on it, dedicate yourself to being a billionaire and then give that all away or create institutions with that money. And it's like that. You ignore it for a long period of time. And almost a bit like how the retirement promise as well. Like you ignore all the things that are maybe valuable for your working career. And then if you survive that, afterwards you can enjoy it in retirement, but not during it. Right. And that's why Marx says capitalism is a necessary stage. Uh, if you don't enter this period of liberal capitalism, then there's no possibility of there being enough resource for large numbers of people to pursue virtue. You're stuck in a condition where only a small minority can do that. Uh, the cost is that we have to have a period where culturally everyone is largely indifferent to this stuff. Yeah, but it's still lucky if you're not indifferent to it then. Yeah, very lucky. You, very yeah. lucky indeed to live with the amount of, of plenty that we have while still thinking about these things. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I think we are getting pretty close to the hour and I think we've done a really nice job of being concise and, and fast. I'm happy. <laughs> happy with the efficiency of this podcast it's something i'm always focusing on i don't like us to go on for too long so uh thank you guys so much for listening do we know who we're doing next maybe lock Have in you... the theory of piracy 
If that's oh yes, we could do someone more modern because yeah, it, the modern ones we've been doing in the scheme are a bit close to medieval. But yeah, yeah, doing James Harrington and calling him modern is a little yeah. bit of a push. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> more than a little bit of a push. Before yeah, the, we yeah. might do we might do Locke in the theory of piracy, or we might do something else. If we do something else, we're thinking about doing Locke in the theory of piracy. So that gives you some information about where our heads are at. Uh, all right, see you next time, guys. Have a great, great rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.